Hello, welcome or welcome back to the Just Eat Normally podcast for eating disorder recovery with me, Dr. Rachel Evans. I am a psychologist, hypnotherapist with a PhD in the psychology of eating and specialist training in eating disorder recovery as well as personal experience of going through an eating disorder and coming out the other side which makes me super passionate about what I do and in every episode as with my one-to-one clients I'm bringing you academic knowledge, information and theories as well as therapeutic skills and personal experiences be that mine or experiences of my guests for a unique perspective on eating disorder recovery. So join me on this podcast as I speak to fellow experts in eating disorder recovery, eating disorder survivors with inspiring stories, and also throw in some bite-sized solo episodes with recovery tips or new ways for you to think about things. The goal of this podcast is to give you food for thought, to shift your mindset, to boost your motivation, and to help you find your own version of normal eating which will allow you to live a truly nourished life. Hi, Richie. Hey, Rachel. Great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. So I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Richie Cartwright. I'm 26. I've previously suffered or struggled with binge eating in the past, and I'm now quite open about it because I run a startup which helps other guys tackle their binge eating. Oh, thank you. That was such a nutshell, wasn't it? <laughs> it's easy to go on for a while. Um, okay, so I was just wondering if we could start with a question that I usually ask on the podcast. So what was your relationship with food like when you were growing up? Yeah, it's a great question. And why I think it's quite interesting as a bloke is because you never think about that. You, I think women are asked this all the time, but as a guy, you don't have a relationship with food. You know, you just you eat it or whatever. It's a functional thing. But no, we actually really do. We just we haven't um, kind of we haven't realized it as guys, actually. And so I think I basically started dieting when I was 14, although I didn't call it that. I called it optimizing my nutrition. I called it getting in the right macros. I called it making sure I could put on muscle in the right way. And I'd probably been caring about my body image since about nine or 10, which again, I didn't realize until about three months ago because I would never have associated with the term body image. But it was very much, I guess, uh, quite a, I played a lot of sport and it was quite a healthy relationship in the sense that I ate well and it was kind of nutritious and I had doctors in the family. So it was always in that side, but you actually, when looking back, you start to see that these body image concerns actually started to play quite an important role and actually started to seed some of the the underlying behaviours, which when I then went to university started to come out in a much more strong way. Okay. Was there anything as like a catalyst when you were about nine that made you think about your body in a different way? I'm estimating the age there because there wasn't mm-hmm. anything specific. It's just when I started to notice that I had fat on my stomach or that, you know, some of the other boys at school, maybe, maybe more like 10, but you start to realize mm-hmm. there's this kind of attractiveness hierarchy. I think that's the age and what you start to realize that. And 
I always played a lot of sports and so was always kind of relatively comfortable in my own skin, but I always knew I was never like the most attractive boy. And, um, but it's never something you'd ever talk about. Yeah. Interesting. So you were saying that actually, I guess for guys, maybe it's a bit different than girls, isn't it? This is also just broad stereotype, but in terms of like guys thinking, I want to be more muscular rather than thinner, I guess, how was it for you? For sure. And we're brought up in a society where, you know, Parisian catwalk models was the archetype for, for kind of women when we were growing up. And for guys, it was Marvel superheroes. And that I think kind of dictates what as a, a young teenager you want to start to look like. Um, it is important to say that the fat level is really important as a guy. It's just seen as, as kind of a different, in a different uh, light almost. And actually the amount of, and we as at Fella work with a lot of guys that are at a higher weight um, who do struggle with binge eating. And the the stories they tell of having been you know, really bullied at school and having mm. destroyed their self-confidence is really, really tragic to hear. And so as a society, we still, um, I'll give an example, actually. One of the guys said, you know, Monica from Friends, you know, those funny episodes where she was younger and she was really, really fat and the actress was in a fat suit. Well, she was suffering from binge eating then. And when he said that, that really clicked in my head because I was like, of course, as a society, we still massively stigmatize it and we massively take the mick out of it. And I was definitely part of those similar games when I was growing up as well. And looking back, it's like, no wonder we create these kind of obsessions, really. Yeah, especially when you wrote, don't understand it at the time or what other people might be going Mm. through, you kind of can't put yourself in there shoes so maybe we do kind of make a joke out of it I'm actually still like oh my god I never thought about what you said about guys and superheroes Mm. I don't know why I don't know what I would have thought of instead just like maybe like um Arnold Schwarzenegger or you know like other kind of guys in films but I've got a nephew who's five and I'm like oh my god I hope he's not thinking that already about superheroes especially when you like um Jason Mawama is that how mm-hmm. he, I can't say his name? Um, as Aquaman, who is like super, yeah, like really, <laughs> even for him, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, just very yeah. unrealistic standards. Yeah, I guess I think. it's it's the and and why the conversation kind of yeah we had uh, Action Man and Barbie right and Barbie mm-hmm. obviously defined beauty standards and in a very pernicious way, but Action Man also did. But the reason why we don't really talk about Action Man is because fortunately guys are a couple of decades behind women in their kind of struggles with this. Um, and it's really tragic to have seen kind of the whole generations of women go through such pressures. And I think the really interesting, but also really tragic thing is what we're starting to see similar pressures now with guys, um, both in the, the extremity of the media presentation of what the archetypal like male body looks like, or it should quote unquote look like. And then also, um, yeah, how guys are reacting to that, really. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of sad to see, but definitely a wave is coming. Yeah, I'm really great that you're there for people who are struggling. We're obviously going to get on to that part of your story later and setting up fella, but I guess back to, like, the story. So you said that things kind of really kind of, I can't think what the word is, grew, came to a head. They were the words that were coming into mind. Escalated um, when you were at uni. Mm. Yeah, so a couple of things going on, a completely different food environment. 
one that I didn't, I no longer had control over and found that uh, remarkably diff- difficult and not realizing why at the time. So people keeping peanut butter in their, in their cupboards or keeping cereals, I shamefully found it really difficult not to steal from them. And that, that caused this kind of whole cycles of shame and guilt when, and, and no perception of this could be related at all to disordered eating. And so that's the one side. And then the second time side is that you're in this very formative period that happens to be more stressful. And especially, so I went to uh, I went to Cambridge Uni and there you go very much from like doing really well at school to like bang on average. And it really tests your self-esteem to be like, oh, what's actually going on here? And I think these kind of deeply testing emotions for a guy that self-proclaimed to not have emotions at the time and only realized as of the last couple of years that maybe, yes, I do have emotions. I think you get these such distorted behaviors that you're completely blind to. And I think these kind of confluence of factors really start to come out. Yeah. Were you in halls to begin with? Do they have like halls or were you like straight and living with people in a flat kind of situation? Yeah, halls in first year and then moving into houses after. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're thinking when you said actually you kind of came to not be in control about food and that actually you're just getting what's there at lunchtime or dinner time? Uh, yeah, so it was actually, um, so uh, interestingly, so we, we did eat in the like cafeteria place and mm-hmm. actually that was quite similar to school and that you kind of go to your school cafeteria kind of thing. The, the big change for me was like when, and at night, at night, as same with loads of the fellas as well, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners, night is kind of this really difficult time. It's this mm-hmm. dark time, this mysterious, this hidden time. And that was a really difficult time for me. And traditionally, when I was at home, it was just my my food at home. And I kind of knew what there that was there. There was no kind of excitement there. I already knew what was in all the cupboards, which is pretty fascinating in itself. But I have this kind of I had this like weird obsession with this like mystery of like, oh, what's in this cupboard? Someone else has kind of bought stuff. And when you have like eight people living together, obviously people go to the shops more often than your parents do. And I think that was this weird thing that kind of really, I struggled with it a lot. Yeah, and shamefully, I never spoke to anyone about it because it's like you're stealing someone else's cereal. Like what's going on there? Yeah, I just want to pick up on a couple of things you said there. One in terms of the like night being kind of this hidden Mm. time, because I know for me with my eating disorder, it was restrictive. But then I came to this point when I started eating and then I would just binge because I was so physiologically hungry. And that would always happen at night because it felt quite safe. Like I would shut the curtains in the kitchen. I would shut the kitchen door, eat what was there really and kind of keep going. And it did feel quite safe to do it then like at the time I never would have done it in the day so I think that's quite interesting point and then also just to agree when I was struggling at university yeah other people's peanut butter and I would try and like make it look like I was using the same knife as them so they couldn't tell I'd eaten it um really just to open up the conversation to say that if anyone else has done it like obviously it's not good to steal people's food but it's kind of like that's not your intention in doing it it's kind of not it is you but it's not you it reveals something your logic than, mm-hmm. than just like you're a bad person or you're this loser mm-hmm. or something it's it's so funny the um i've definitely had examples where i've like finished someone's peanut butter say or like finish their cereal i mean like, oh no 
And then, so you have to go and buy it and then hopefully the shop's open because you've got to go immediately or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, then you've got to get it to the same level at which you finished it. And it's like, it's like yeah, quite And turn it around exactly the right way oh, so the label's God. the right way. <laughs> yeah, it really resonates, Rich. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, a whole art form in itself. But um, what was I going to say? Now we're just like, oh, let's just talk about it. I think it is really important to talk about it because I think there's people out there thinking this is only me. Yeah. Just in the fact that when I was saying it, like it is me, but it's not me. Like what I try and do with my clients is say, just help them understand what's going on so it doesn't feel as shameful. So for me, if I could have just bought my own peanut butter and just allowed myself to eat a bit, I wouldn't have needed to steal my housemates. But because of all the other dietary rules and everything else going on, it didn't feel to me like buying my own was an option. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think sometimes putting that lens on it of like, okay, I wouldn't choose to act like that again, but why did I do it then? Or if you're doing it now, having a look, what are the reasons that I might be doing it? And for yours, interesting, you said about this kind of mystery mm-hmm. of what's in other people's cupboards. Yeah, that's really interesting. Not heard anyone say that before. There's the there's a novelty aspect of mm-hmm. like, especially if you, it sounds like, you know, you went through intensely restrictive periods as well, where you only eat the same thing. And so anything that is outside of that is extremely novel, especially if it's forbidden. And it's like, well, that's mm-hmm. that's a, a con- like a co- concoction of incredible temptation. Yeah, I wonder if for guys, because I said I haven't worked with as many guys as women, but there does seem to be this like, um, I was going to use the same word forbidden, but it's forbidden in a different way. Not just like, oh, that's forbidden by my dietary rules, but in a like, oh, this is a bit naughty or mischievous for me mm. to be doing. A kind of more risk seeking side than I find with women. Again, just an overview stereotype. But mm. how do you think about that? And you mean specifically with food? Yeah, I mean specifically with like binge eating and like the binging behavior. It's kind of like, oh, am I going to get found out about this more than with girls? Yeah, interesting. I, the, I'm, yeah, not entirely sure. I think the, the stuff that is definitely the case is you'd frame it as not as like, I'm not on a diet. Guys don't call it mm. diets. What are you on about? Yeah. I'm just eating clean. I'm just in my bulking phase. I'm cutting. I'm, you know, all these, I, I'm working on my physique, all these whistle whistles for mm-hmm. <laughs> restrictive dieting, but we would never call it that at all. And so it's when you're like, oh, no, no, I'm just having my cheat meal. And then you're like, got it. Okay, now we're now we're kind of completely understanding what's going on in like guy bodybuilding terms. Yeah, I think that definitely seeps into for women as well or diet culture. Like it's acceptable, like you say, to be bulking or cutting, but it's not acceptable to be dieting mm. anymore. I think that's kind of coming in for for girls as well and just like oh it's a lifestyle change it's not a diet Mm. when like we know sometimes it is just red flag for diet this is a diet yeah yeah. restricting exactly yeah okay so kind of escalated Mm. at university and like you said you didn't really um seek help then I guess what was it that made you think okay now it's time to do something about this was there a certain like trio or certain thing that happened yeah, and I want to emphasize the time that had to take place. It was five years yeah. until my 24th birthday. And that's the first time I ever, ever Googled about the signs I'd been showing. And so for these five, this five-year period, I'd been like, well, I don't know what's going on, but I've got to tackle it myself. I've got to be more disciplined. I've got to 
introduce keto, mm. no sugar, um, no eating after nine, stricter calorie counting, you know, all the stuff. I've done it all. And you never, for whatever reason, never once considered it was an external psychological thing that I could get help with. And so only when it escalated further and it kind of, I say it comes from the dark into the light. So it, it went from nighttime only, maybe like 2000 calorie binges, something like that. And then it was seeping into the day and some of the binges mm-hmm. were like 5,000 calories. My worst day was two, two times 5,000. So 10,000 in a day. And for reference, I'd know exactly what I ate because I was using my fitness pal. I was about to say, did you count it? That's quite interesting as well, because I do find often, again, generalization, but often people may count their calories, but then a binge isn't counted. It doesn't go in my fitness pal. It just is that thing that is really like pushed down, I guess, in someone's mind. Yeah, well, exactly. And it's the like, I'm either good or I'm bad. (laughs) <laughs> and when I'm good, I'm on it, I'm eating keto and I'm uh, intermittent fasting and I'm uh, calorie counting. And when bad, I'm not doing any of those things. I think it was interesting for me that actually <laughs> I, during a binge, I would still be monitoring the food as a kind of almost an extra layer of self-punishment because you, mm-hmm. you, you're you instilling guilt actually whilst you're doing it. But at least you feel somewhat in control. I actually don't quite know the psychology of that. But. Yeah, I feel like with eating disorders, it's like it makes perfect sense at the time, but it's actually quite illogical. But at the time, it kind of makes sense yeah. to you when you're you're doing it. But when I was Instagram stalking you earlier, um, I didn't actually watch your Instagram live, but I read the section about it when you were talking about authenticity and recovery. Um, since I didn't watch it, I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit now. Do you remember the one that I'm on about? I think so. Um, mm-hmm. they're all kind of my my thoughts anyway so they're yeah. kind of in in there swelling around in my head I guess it's the the language I've, I've had to we've had to think a lot about the language we use because we will scare away guys if we use the wrong language I'm just going to mm-hmm. put it simply and so we don't use the term eating disorder we don't use the term recovery we don't we tend to shy away from mental health as a term. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to think a lot about linguistics and that's not to take any power away from that or to say that that's not like strong in itself because that's, <laughs> we, we are fully behind the evidence base. It's just how to make it um, palatable for, for, for the people so we can, we can help them help themselves. So the about recovery, I think is a really important one because it feeds often into this kind of binary mindset of which, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and the kind of abstinence movement within food is very much a part of binge eating, which is basically this idea that I'm either I'm either struggling or I'm recovered. And yeah. as soon as in binge eating and maybe in bulimia with a purge and anorexia, maybe with the, mm-hmm. the mindset, as soon as you have one bad day, bam, you've lost it and you're back to square square one. And it's that that I, I want to strongly fight against because mm-hmm. it's exactly that that's the black or white dichotomous thinking. And the, instead, I like to think of it as um, <laughs> the cliche is obviously it's a journey, but I, I more like to say distance. And mm. so it's like um, you, we're often drawn to these behaviors because of stress or other factors in our life. And so what we want to do is build resilience and distance from the behavior. So we don't pick up that tool when we have those mm. stresses. And the most what we found with Fella, with the, the helping guys who binge, the most dangerous time is probably three months into the program when they're no longer binge eating but Mm. they're probably like not that far away from it if they have increased stress in the future but you don't 
you can lose a lot of motivation at that time because you can think, wow, I'm, I'm kind of recovered. And that's why I go, mm, it's distant. And that's why it's this kind of continuous improvement. I think that was uh, the essence of what I was trying to say there. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I kind of agree. It's not just you wake up one day and you're recovered. Mm. And I think I talk about a lot of similar things with my clients as well, just in like, how can you structure your life that you're not going to get in those stressful situations if stress was the trigger? And don't just get blasé about it, like you said, and just think, oh, I'm fine. Like, don't set yourself up. I was going to say to fail just because that's common language use I don't literally mean fail um but I mean have a binge again or whatever it was mm-hmm. um yeah and how can you sort of reframe it if that did happen instead of thinking like oh it's happened once it's going to happen forever again I'll just throw in the towel on that how can you mm-hmm. actually just learn from that again I don't really like to use journey either because it does seem a bit cheesy but as the part of your journey to know mm-hmm. um yeah no, guess- actually I was just going to say on that, Rachel, as well. Like I, I, um, from my re- reading of the the research, I really struggle with this kind of notion that you're always uh, someone with an eating disorder, or like mm-hmm. you, you, you're similar, like you're always an alcoholic. And I think that's deeply flawed and kind of not good enough. <laughs> just because it may have been that case in the past, it doesn't mean like there's anything inherent in that. And it's very much kind of not that case, and we shouldn't accept that narrative and we shouldn't rely on these kind of tactics and strategies day to day we that's the the kind of power of going kind of to the deeper cognitive level and and trying to kind of really break and i i say it's kind of a journey or a path to indifference it's kind mm-hmm. of calmness and indifference of where we want to go as opposed to these like tactics and strategies yeah i feel like i want to do like a little dance when we're <laughs> saying that because i totally agree one reason being that it's so demotivating to recover if it's like you'll always be in recovery and like funny enough um I was talking about work stuff to my husband when we went on a walk the other day and he was like oh is eating disorder like are you like an alcoholic in recovery or can you recover and I was like well what do you you think I'm recovered like Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I would say I'm recovered so I was just wondering his um reply he didn't really say anything Mm. to that but he was just kind of asking me about it and I kind of think similar to you I feel like it is what I thought you were going to say earlier was like a spec if it's a spectrum and actually you can be kind of more one way or the other more recovered or less recovered I guess more severe symptoms but actually I feel like there is some kind of threshold within that as well when you tip over it and you're like I'm just not binging again it kind of is making that choice. Like, even if I feel super stressed, even if for whatever reason, I may be the thought crossed my mind, I'm just not going to do it. And then for me, recovery is like that thought crosses your mind less and less and less, the less you does do it because that habit pathway in your brain is becoming weaker. Yeah, I was going to say, let me share my analogy with you and see what you think, if you agree, or if you would suggest any changes. I don't think I've shared it on the podcast yet. So Basically, I think when you've got an eating disorder, just bear with me too, because you're going to be like, what first? It's like you have got um, a beekeeper's hat on, but all the bees are inside. So it's like all the thoughts about body image, all the thoughts about food, binging, whatever, are just in there. And you just cannot get away from them. You just have to act on them. And it's like other people try and tell you like from the outside, oh, you look fine, but you're just not hearing it because all you've got are these bees. And then recovery, maybe getting some help is like we're lifting off the hat and some bees are coming out, but some are still in there. And I feel like when you're recovered, it's like you've put the hat on. Some bees have died. They're not coming back. Like you're just not bothered about those things anymore. 
But then I guess when you're sort of into recovery, maybe the bee will come and tap on the outside, but you're not letting it in because you know, oh, actually, say maybe like restricting myself, going keto again is not going to help me, but the idea is there, but I'm just not engaging that idea. And then I feel like the more you get into recovery, the less these bees come back, or you might see it flying in the distance, but you're like, ah, I know you, <laughs> I'm going that other way instead, so you don't get in my hat. Does that make sense to you? It does. And I think it's interesting from a personal perspective as well, in that I broke my a relationship with binge eating way earlier, um, mm-hmm. almost a year ago, um, before, way before my attachment to body image, which I'm still, I'd say, going through. Um, yeah. And it's kind of interesting. I, you know, I had these kind of be tapping thoughts to use that metaphor around mm-hmm. body image, like really not that long ago. And you, but now you have a much greater appreciation of kind of what's going on. Like, oh shit. I know you, like I yeah. recognize what's going on now. That's cool. Yeah, I think it really helps as well when I say that to clients, because otherwise, I think people maybe expect, oh, I'm recovered, I would never have an old thought again. But I think sometimes it just happens that you're in a triggering situation. And it it happens almost just because your brain has thought it not because you want to think it sometimes. Yep. It's like very strange. Anyway. um, Okay, so we going back to the story. I did warn you that my podcast is all over the place. I love it. It's like a true conversation. (laughs) How was it when you kind of came into the light and realized actually maybe what I'm doing, I don't want to be doing like during Mm. the day as well? The the first thing is I was like, well, this is weird. And then didn't take me that many days to actually Google it. And then I was like, but this again, five years down the line, so it's a Mm. long time. And then I was like, and Google's very good. So you instantly get directed to the right page and you read the page and you're like, that is me. That is me. That's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. So first thing you're like, shit, I've never told anyone this. Like, how do you know web page on the internet? And then the second thing, maybe more as a bloke is that you see, for me, it was seeing binge eating disorder. And I saw the words eating disorder. And then I did like a double take. I did confusion. I was like, well, I don't know. It can't be about me. (laughs) Like that's not a thing that guys have. And Mm -hmm. I I literally would say that to myself. And so I, I was in this kind of relatively confused state of like, well, that's clearly me, but that can't be me surely. So, and then something really fascinating happened and uh, living with my best mate. And like, this is not a, I've spoken with him many times since, so this is not a slight on him at all, but I, I brought this up with him. I was like, by the way, man, I, something weird's going on. Uh, has for a long time, but it's definitely escalated. And I typed it in, and it kind of, there's this thing I found. And he's like, "Nah, man, I'm, you know, I've seen you. You, you finish, you finish food. Like we all do. We kind of, we go to the gym, etc. That kind of stuff." And obviously, he had only seen like the absolute tip of the iceberg because I would never binge around people at all. And I think the bigger reflection is not on either of us because I also was like, "Yeah, good point." Yeah, I probably don't have anything yeah, to crack on in my life. But as women, I think instantly we probably would have realized like a decade ago, but certainly in that moment. No? No, I don't think no so. I've had a lot of clients that say to me when they say to their family, um, I had someone who was binging like 6,000 calories regularly, sort of in a week, several times in a week, and then her family, because I think they don't see it they don't realize and they especially don't realize because they're not in your head how it's making you feel when that happens of course 
this is why my podcast is called Just Eat Normally because people say, well, can you not just eat less? And it's like, oh, thank you. I never thought about that. I never thought to change this. It just, when you're doing it, it feels sometimes like you're compelled to do it and you kind of, obviously you do have a choice, but it feels like you don't have a choice. And then like you say, all the guilt and shame that they don't see that. Maybe they have never experienced that around food themselves. So I don't think it always, I think for girls as well, playing into a stereotype, I think if you looked underweight, then people might think, oh, there's something wrong with you. But I think if your body looked healthy, again, a a judgment, Mm. but if you looked healthy or even slightly overweight, that people would probably just say for a little while, oh, you're probably all right because they don't understand. I don't know. That's just my perception. Maybe some people have got help sooner. But I I guess especially especially binge eating, people don't understand Exactly. Yeah, I think actually a really spot on point and good kind of correction from your side. As you said, the binge eating is this kind of relatively new or at least a diagnostic criteria, um, relatively new, really quite misunderstood by primary care. I um, literally onboarded a fella an hour ago who said he'd been to his primary care practitioner in his country and um, they'd said, oh, yeah, it's just all in your head, like period, full stop. And like, well well yeah <laughs> yeah not yeah, that helpful though I think for me too though the thing is it is in your head but it's also physiological too in terms of the effect that food's having on your body and your blood sugar and then making you maybe want to binge again for physiological reasons too so I think it's important to like get a whole picture yeah. of what's going on but obviously you don't understand that when it's happening to you exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you said to your friend, oh, also what I was going to ask you is in that five years, was it quite consistent or were, were there periods it didn't happen at all? Yeah, it was very consistent. And I think just because I was like, my fat level was very low throughout. I, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, I always kind of had a six pack and that would pin mix of sport, but also I hadn't realized the dietary restriction. And so it was constantly like this thing going on that was just like, oh, okay, well maybe it's just this this thing that was all that was the the depth of my analysis so yeah it it never I definitely had what I'd call good periods where you're really motivated you found a new diet I'm quite a motivated guy anyway so you know six weeks I could not really binge or whatever um but prolonged periods of time like three to six months and onwards now it was it was always shorter than that it's interesting before as well what you said about discipline like I need more discipline yeah because that's a word I hear often from my clients mm. about um, having the discipline, making even stricter rules when the rules you haven't got aren't working. Let's see how we can tie yeah. them up or let's see what else we could cut out. Um, not realizing that that's obviously like exacerbating the problem yeah. and then binging on the foods that you're cutting out. Um, again, question. <laughs> I hope you don't think this is too probing. I'm just like asking you all the questions. Um, this, did is, it this, tend- is, this is my job now. <laughs> I've literally put my life story front and center. I'm very happy to be questioned about it. Yeah, okay. I think you're quite like me. People are like, how do you talk about this? And I'm like, I don't know. I just say what's <laughs> just to me do, and I just yeah. answer the question. I, I think um, on, on that, you know, we mentioned authenticity before. I think mm-hmm. it was the moment that I like released my story and it became, it was like, it like, kind of popped off and I was like wow like I I've done something like really not that impressive there I've just got my laptop it's got a shitty webcam I had shitty lighting I just talked into a camera for seven minutes and like wow like people appreciate that and I was like there's something weird going on here like there must be a deep lack of truth and authenticity in the world if this is something that resonates 
Amazing. I'm so glad you got that positive response though, because I can imagine if people kind of say and then don't get that, you kind of think, oh my God, now I've got to hide it even more. But I think usually when I share, I have people commenting like, oh, how can you say that? Which again, maybe a conversation that will come on to about how to sort of release mm-hmm. that feeling of shame. Um, I was going to ask you when I was like, is this true intrusive? Was it that the foods you were binging on were foods that you weren't really letting yourself eat? Or was it just like large quantities of like, I don't know what eggs came into my mind, but do you know, as in like yeah. standard food or like what we might think of as like binge food? Yeah, so the definitely forbidden foods, both mm. for the psychological draw and just also the like different nutritional profile. So yeah, the you, I would, I'd not rare, not, um, I'd fairly commonly kind of overeat like broccoli or chicken or something mm-hmm. like that was kind of very much part of my dietary regimen. But when I like went out, like as in, sorry, when I went, when I went all in, oh mm-hmm. yeah, that was, I cut out all kind of dietary rules there. And it was very much like croissants for whatever reason mm-hmm. was like my, my worst go-to. Yeah, when I was thinking about this uh, recording this podcast earlier as well, I was going to ask you, are there any foods that you can't eat now because you used to binge on them? Like, do you have that or are they just like a normal food again? Yeah, a a big part of what we do at Fellow is called controlled exposure, which or like Mm. normalization to these foods and very much the idea that um, it's okay to have forbidden foods in the very short run because they could be too triggering. But Mm. we it's very much a process towards, again, indifference, where all food groups, whatever, should not cause any emotional spike. That's the kind of Mm -hmm. thing we work to. So no, for me now, um, I'm kind of open game. Interesting to still reflect. I still have a relatively like um, routined diet, but I try very hard to, if there's anything I kind of notice any emotional spike to, and that's my trigger for me. If I like go, ah, there's an emotional thing going on there. Mm -hmm. I'm like, right, that's on my normalization list. And next yeah. time I go to the shop, buy a small quantity of that. Yeah, I think there's two things that I was going to say. One, I was just thinking, I don't know if it's because I had bulimia as well. And you were like, this mm. is a bit crude. So sorry, everyone. But you're tasting the food a second time. <laughs> in that there's certain things that I can't eat because it just makes me feel sick. Really? Just because I think my body is like, well, we don't want that yeah. anymore. Um, it's not that I care about the food as such. It's just that my physiological reaction to it is like, oh, no, we do not. Yeah. It's not that many things. It's just like a certain soup from Sainsbury's that I just cannot even think about without being like, no, I cannot have you. Um, But other stuff is kind of like chocolate and all the usual kind of things I can have. Um, And then I guess the second thing is about the, yeah, what you were saying about the kind of exposure and having them back in your diet, I think is really important. Um, How did you, I guess, start to reintroduce those foods? Because I think that's what people worry about happening sort of having it in the house for the first time yeah the word I used to use was chaos here and Mm. uh, I didn't realize but I was always telling myself you will descend into chaos if you have peanut butter in the house because that was the only evidence I'd ever had with these foods like peanut butter and croissants I'd only Mm -hmm. I either was like not eating them or binging on them so it kind of like makes sense that my brain was like tricked into thinking that so the the key that we say at the start is with controlled exposure kind of two main approaches you can either flood or you can grade graded or flooding Mm -hmm. um um, flooding you can do but is uh is a difficult game to play grading is seems to be the best approach and that's basically to say if you always eat don't binge on donuts and you always eat five or ten at a time or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, what you need to what you need to do is say you're happy with one, 
like mini donut or something. Somehow mm. you've got to buy just one and have nothing else around. And that maybe, sadly, that would mean like buying a packet of four and throwing three away proactively mm. and then having this one and the thing. So with all the guys, we have a, a kind of procedure they go through, which is kind of a very detailed step-by-step approach, which is like, okay, at this time, I will, and then if, and then then, and then then, and then then. Yeah. This is basically like, how do I get to this? <laughs> basically, how do I go from the shop back to my um, dinner table, the lunch table, and then have this in a very controlled way without it escalating? And then the really powerful part about that is you've given yourself one piece of evidence. Be like, ah, yeah, I can eat this without binging. And then you just try and compound that one piece. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think as well, even just looking in your in their life, when has been a time that I have had one donut and stopped? Because sometimes it's like, oh, I had one and then my mum rang me and so I was talking to her and then I didn't think yeah. to go back to them. Actually, usually people can find one piece of evidence just to tell your brain it's not the end of the world if I don't have them. But that sounds like a really helpful approach. The other thing that I was going to say, actually, in terms of um, only like last year, like 2020 did I realize I still had foods on like I do a thing with my clients of like always sometimes never foods in that thinking if you have an eating disorder there's a lot of foods that you would never have because of rules that we want to move them into the have sometimes category or have always category and have more flexibility and the thing is there's so many possible foods that you could eat that actually it takes a long time to get through all the sometimes ones and stuff. So some, like occasionally my clients will say about a food and I think, oh my God, I haven't eaten that for like years and years. It's not that I actively like mean to avoid it for a dietary rule. It's just because like you were saying about I have the general foods I eat on a week to week just so I know what to buy from the supermarket and it just makes mm-hmm. life easy. But actually there's a lot of foods that you basically never even think about, do you, until someone mm-hmm. tells you about it. And then I'm like, right. So now as well, I'm like, right, I'm going to go and eat that now just to show myself that I can. Yeah, exactly. We One of the um, fellows we work with has this, he calls it his normalization list. And he goes mm-hmm. about his life as normal and kind of doesn't really think about it. But then when he notices, like say he gets offered a, a slice of pizza and he goes, oh, no, thank you. and Or he could obviously say like, yes, please. Mm-hmm. But if he says no, thank you, and then he goes, ah, interesting. Like I'm getting some kind of reaction or impulse there. Just notes it down. And then when he's calm and his next meal, he will like have one piece or two pieces or whatever. And I think that's a really nice way of like constantly cycling through. Yeah. He sounds very introspective as well. Cause it could be just like, Oh no, I don't fancy pizza or whatever. But if you're noticing, like you say, the exactly. rules coming back into play, it's interesting to notice that. I feel like as well, when this is jumping into recovery, but when there are so many foods you can eat, like I say, you never feel the need to binge on one because you could have that one or you could have that one or you could have that one. It's just, mm. but it feels kind of scary, doesn't it? I suppose when you're in the eating disorder mindset of like, oh my God, there's so many foods and so little time. <laughs> yeah. I know I definitely felt like that when I was recovering. It's like, oh my God, which one shall I eat first? Now I can eat these different ones, but. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The excitement. Yeah, and then. It is difficult, like you're saying, like for food to be emotionally neutral, because I think it is. But also it's kind of hard to be that too, isn't it? Like I've found um, during lockdown, I was just so bored of cooking and food. And I was like, oh, I really want to go out to the pub and just like have a break and like reset. This sounds really diety. I was going to say reset my relationship with food, but it's not that. It was more just like, I'm so bored of cooking the same thing. <laughs> I do want that excitement. I think we need to get that excitement from food in some ways. 
but then it can just go into overdrive like with the eating disorder it's probably like looking where you are on that spectrum also I hope that came across in the right way because sometimes I'm like English only has so many words I don't want to sound like a bit weird (laughs) it's interesting about the excitement piece because I would never have used that word until I started to introspect Mm -hmm. and then I was like actually like Hell, this is hella exciting when I'm binge eating and often this is just I'm bored both of like whatever's going on that day but also of the food I'm eating and so this hella exciting experience which happens to be like eating a load of forbidden food and so that is mm-hmm. I think a fantastic reminder that if you don't um, give yourself enough kind of stimulus mm-hmm. in your like daily routine of course you will create this and actually I've taken tons of lessons but that lesson specifically into my working life as well because I used to be very much like, you know, hard work is a virtue, no time for rest. Yeah. Um, any time off is time wasted. And I just found myself procrastinating. And I was like, when I started to introspect, I was like, shit, this is binge eating. <laughs> like procrastination is binge eating, binge eating, procrastination. It's the same kind of underlying mechanism beneath. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You pull out like excitement is a big motivator as well. What I see with my clients is just really feeling like I can just zone out. When I'm having a binge, it's almost so much on autopilot, like I'm just eating mm. whatever is there until it's done, that I actually can just forget about all my problems for a little while. Did you ever yeah. find that for yourself as well? Yeah, I think the interesting part again to notice is like I was definitely using it to numb emotion, but at the time I didn't realize I had emotion. Yeah. So... So this is the kind of fascinating thing that I had no idea what was going on and it just was kept happening. Yeah. And looking back, do you know what emotion that was or it was various emotions? Yeah, probably, uh, yeah, definitely a mix of uh, kind of minor anxiety, like place in the world, where where am I going? What is my future? Mm -hmm. Those kind of, I think, the deeply testing ones where with the mindset I had, it was very much like, well, you've just got to work harder and you've just got to do it yourself. And and so then, you know, stiff up a lip and, and kind of bite your, and just, yeah, like gr- grit on. So it was probably those deeply testing emotions, which I probably would, would spike anxiety or something now, but I still don't probably have that good a vocabulary around it, actually. Yeah. I think we just aren't taught to have a good vocabulary. I mean, this is my job, but even sometimes I just go back to the basics unless I'm really thinking (laughs) about like, am I sad or what kind of sad is being sad? (laughs) It's not just sad. Interesting that you say though about that place in the world. And then that was also a factor for my eating disorder Mm -hmm. too, just feeling like I should be achieving something. I need to be reaching my potential, but Mm -hmm. not enjoying this. And just, I guess, feeling like I should have my whole life planned out, but I just didn't know what I wanted to do or actually I did want to be a psychologist but just feeling like that wasn't good enough Mm. and so I had to pick something else and then I tried to pursue well no I didn't try and pursue something else that's not a lie but I didn't just go straight to doing this which is what I could Mm. have done in the first place so I think that will probably resonate with some people listening as well do you know why it wasn't good enough do you know why you said that My, to Oh, I know why. It's because when I looked up how much does a psychologist earn, I thought my dad will want me to have a job that pays more money than that because um, I think I was quite lucky growing up. Like my dad had his own company. He is very driven um, to do that. So like we had nice holidays. We had a nice house, like not mega, 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 but, you know, nice and secure and all the things that we 
could have wanted. So I was like, I must do the same. I must do the same for my kids. Maybe that salary isn't going to be enough. So I shouldn't do that, even though it's kind of like my heart was mm. in that. Um, so that was the reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very common, common reflection, I guess. Yeah. And then I think, I don't know, you just grow up and then realize actually money isn't everything. Obviously it's helpful, but yeah. <laughs> not everything. Um, okay. So we never did answer, did we? Um, when it started coming into the light, mm. I guess, how did you seek help from then when you were looking like, okay, yes, those criteria definitely like speaking to me. Mm. What was the next thing? <laughs> so something dictates probably masculinity dictates six months of like not telling anyone because that's all I know. And then further dietary restriction. That was, I think when I went vegan, which was clearly the solve it all because all my binge foods were not vegan, but alas, um, that doesn't work. And so then about six months later, for whatever reason, so I was at my parents' house. It was, I think I was back for mother's day. I got up during the middle of the night when everyone had just gone to sleep and I ate three, I, I remember because I noted it all down, 3,000 calories of chocolate in 25 minutes. And then you're obviously not feeling fantastic the next day. And uh, I don't know why I told my parents that day, but I did. And I just mm. said, look, I did this thing last night. And look, <laughs> I do this thing very often. I don't quite know what's going on. I did a little bit of research in this. Is, and fortunately, they are, they are doctors themselves. So they were a little bit confused to the extent that like a guy, a young guy, a healthy looking guy is saying this stuff around food, but I, they obviously knew enough to be like, ah, okay, CBT and disordered relationship with food. This is, this is kind of, we, we know how to deal with this as a, as a medical community. And so yeah. Yeah, had a uh, CBT for that. And that was obviously really effective. And, um, I guess actually one interesting thing which has really driven our work with fellow is just how difficult it was to find um, people that knew about this uh, and tried to via the NHS pathway, but the, the waiting list is obviously very long. And That was um, going to be my next question, actually, yeah. Was it private well, or NHS? Yeah. Well, so I went to the GP, but, but they just didn't really understand. And... Um, which is a bit of a shame. And I guess as well, I'm still like, I'm in a proud mindset at that point. Mm -hmm. So maybe I go, well, you know, sometimes I eat quite a lot of food and they're, they're just clearly thinking, fuck, I've got so many sick patients. Why does this healthy young guy that like, come in here and talk about food that like, clearly doesn't have a problem? So, so that didn't go too well. And, um, and so then I, yeah, went privately for that, but then it was really difficult to find like anyone that wasn't kind of a generalist in this which is, has been a really fascinating thing. And so I actually realized in retrospect, I did therapy. It was kind of a bit, it was cognitive. It was a it mainly talking therapy and I didn't do anywhere nearly as the robust nature that we now present with Fella of the kind of the syllabus-based kind of cognitive behavior mm -hmm. therapy, um, which I guess I found quite frustrating actually when I realized, but at the same time was still very helpful at the time. Yeah, I think just coming back to what you said about the doctors, because we talked about this on the podcast before, mm. I think it's very difficult to walk into the doctor's office and be like, I have an eating disorder. I'm mm. really like stand your ground when, like you say, you might just be accepting it yourself. Or I think a lot of people are in denial for a good long while that actually you're going to go in with the 
symptoms of it if you have other symptoms um so for me it was like my hair was falling out I was cold all the time other things I think when I had bulimia I went in and I was like this is how many times I'm making myself sick and they were like okay we'll help you (laughs) um but I feel like if I'd have said it was less often which wouldn't have been true for me but then they might have got a different result um then so I think it is hard like you say when they're asking you these questions sometimes it is easier to downplay it or kind of say something and especially since it's such a short time to have a consultation like 10 minutes isn't it to get across um what it is but then you found someone Mm -hmm. yeah I was just gonna say with the fellas a lot of the guys are overweight as well and so when they go to see their primary care practitioner because a lot of the guys also aren't British so that's why I say primary care practitioner they are told to lose weight that's Mm. what they're told to because that is more diet rules yeah, exactly. Yeah. More. yeah. Uh, here is here is a um, a, a spread uh, a, like a, a one pager on like how to lose weight. Like go, it's like ah yeah. And the I, I, it's not a criticism of healthcare system because like intensely limited resources. And as my dad, who's a GP, says, like he's an expert at nothing but everything. You know, it's just like yeah. zero knowledge about everything. And so it's not a criticism at all, but it does mean that. You know, when you see figures like 20% of obese people struggle with binge eating disorder, you start to think, ah, actually, a lot of the current treatments of which we're trying to help people who are in not a fantastic state are actually probably harming them. And you're like, ah, not ideal. Yeah. In a previous podcast episode, um, when we were talking about health at every size and like why diets don't work for weight loss, um, and then the guest said some really helpful things about going to your doctor if you are overweight and needing to get help so just kind of putting it in there in case anyone wants to refer um back to that um so yeah how long has fella been going and i would love for you to share more about that with us Mm. so just to make sure your listeners in the loop so we Mm. help guys struggling with binge eating and fella is two kind of core components the first is exercises cognitive exercises built on cbt which we've tried to make into little bite-sized chunks pardon the pun um instead of this kind of 100 page pdf you get sent this kind of software native five minute exercise you do every day and that is the therapeutic that is kind of what makes you get better bit by bit but the critical part for the community aspect for the fellas is as most of the guys had before joining this had never spoken to anyone about this so only their self knew. Um, the critical part is a community as well. So everything we do is intertwi- intertwined with that. So it's these two pieces, these cognitive exercises and the community, the therapeutic and the, the kind of emotional support that defines what fella is. And we kicked off kind of in September time, so about five months ago now. And it started really quite organically. So basically my friend persuaded me or my co-founder as well, persuaded me to put out a post on the Reddit groups I'd been part of for so long uh, to say, you know, are there any other guys out there? I've never seen another guy basically. And I was, I was so skeptical. And then just hundreds of guys came back and we were like, oh shit, you know, there's something here. So the first thing was putting everyone together. And then we were like, oh, we need to actually make this kind of more formal, get clinical oversight with the clinical psychologist and basically try to deliver the internet native solution for um for guys who are struggling with binge eating and that's i guess where we're starting but we have much bigger visions of how this approach can can kind of go into other conditions yeah i had a little look on the website or on your instagram i can't remember Mm -hmm. which one i was like having a look at it and i like how you said you're 
you didn't use these words, but my take home was that you're trying to make it more interesting than like you said, more dry. Cause I think I don't use CBT. I use elements of CBT, but I use quite a varied approach with my clients. And some come to me because they're like, oh, I thought CBT was boring. I didn't want to do homework. And I do sometimes give my clients homework, not in the school sense of like, you Mm. must do this now. Like we agree what it's going to be. But it sounds like you've kind of found a nice way to do that that is actually engaging for people and people want to do it. Well, I guess we, we want to be kind of like effective, and we mm-hmm. want to be evidence-based. So we want to make sure that we're using kind of the, the proper techniques. Um, but we also are inspired by you know, ACT and CFT and other therapeutics. Yeah. But at the same time, it's mad that I would go on Instagram or we're, you know, we're using Zencast or, or Zoom for this. So some of the mm-hmm. world's best software to, to live our kind of normal lives. And then for the thing that is most important in our life, this kind of mental struggle, which is so often hidden, we will use pen and paper and a hundred page PDF, which is impenetrable and deeply unenthusiastic. And it's like, what is going on there? Like, how can we use the world's best software to skim Instagram, but not for like our mental well-being? And so I guess as software engineers, we're like, we think we can do a lot better than that. Yeah, I like how it's so contained. Like, obviously, I love Instagram for disseminating information, but you can get all sorts of different conflicting things. And it's just so overwhelming, I think, sometimes, isn't it? When you're hearing, oh, there's a bit of advice over here, and there's a bit of advice over here, and a bit of advice over here that says something different. And you think, oh, my God, yeah. what am I going to do? I'm like kind of the procrastination thing that you were saying about earlier. There's so much to do that I'm actually just going to carry on with what I was doing before because trying to do those things is too much. Or people telling you, like, oh, just change your mind, which, I mean, it is obviously about just changing your mind, but not just doing it. It doesn't tell you how to do it. So I think it's good that you kind of put it all in one place for people to work through. And in kind of, I guess there's two inspirations from that. Like I'm kind of fed up of 10 top tips, BuzzFeed Mm. kind of articles of like, how is that actually actionable? And making sure that these are like very concrete things that the guys can do that will improve their kind of mental state. I think sometimes as well when I do like workshops or I've recently done a group course um, about stop binge eating, which is going to be an online course as well. And some of the things seem so simple, but actually just taking the time to sit down and do it is very effective. Or sometimes when people even are just, I'm not sure if any of your things involve like writing stuff um, down. I know you said it's online, but um, if people do write down, they're like, oh, when I just saw it in black and white, it made so much more sense than when it's just flying around in my head and I kind of can't put it in an order. Um, So I think a lot of the things as well aren't even like rocket science. They just make sense at the right, putting them at the right time for people. Exactly that. No, spot on. Yeah, okay. Um, Let me just check my question list. Oh, okay. I think we already covered this, um, but just on the questions that I was answering in the last episode... Does your job make your eating disorder worse or trigger you? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so basically, I, I no longer am struggling with binge eating. So, uh, so that's a good sign. So, despite being in this job, I'd say that we ha- I have to, like two um, different sides to this. So, uh, founding a company, trying to run a company, trying to grow a company is obviously very stressful, and so stress is a. a a cause of binge eating and so like not good for the binge eating what has been definitely overweighing that and like really good for binge eating is building a company in binge eating because number one i am faced with guys every day and have been for months now that say the exact same things that i would say and when someone else says it you go oh shit 
Like, <laughs> like that's what I would think. And that's not, that's pretty distorted. And so then you, you get this constant kind of feedback and then you're like, okay, I, I've got to improve here. And so, yeah, definitely interesting. Starting fella has been the best thing I could have ever done to really kick me into gear to like really take this to the, to the next level. So yeah, overall, this has actually been a massive net positive. Yeah. Amazing. Um, mm, okay. We haven't quite touched on this, um, but we almost did. Um, how do you believe that recovery is worth it when they've said the eating disorder voice in the question? So I'm guessing the person that um, did the question was restricting. And sometimes when people are restricting, you probably know sure. you like, literally get a voice. Um, but for you, I guess the urges or whatever you would call it. How do you believe that recovery is worth it when the ED voice mm-hmm. is saying the opposite? It's tough. Like, yeah, it's it's not easy. It's the same. I think it's the same battle that you face when you've got to make long-term decisions over short-term seeming rewards um, whenever you've got to make those. So in your kind of work life or your relationships or your familial life, whatever. Um, and it's, I think it's actually in the rational light of day, you can definitely see that it's best in the long term. And so then it's about, I guess, we're often focused on these kind of cognitive challenges or cognitive experiments where you go, okay, well, interesting in the, in the cold light of day, it's pretty clear, but in the heat of the moment, it's obviously really tough. Can we try to bring either evidence to the table, either with challenges or with experiments that kind of start to break down those fundamental beliefs and therefore start to kind of free yourself of those very restrictive uh, short-term mindsets. But it's tough. I've many times with the kind of trying to normalize my relationship with food, I've allowed my body to change by a couple more percentage body fat Mm. than I normally would, which to me was fucking crazy, right? And so you have these deeply testing body image shorts of like, why are you doing this to yourself? Um, um, no one will love you. Like no one will find you attractive. Mm. You know, you're becoming ugly. You're doing this to yourself. You'll regret this. Like, why are you doing this? You know, the tools that will work. They've worked for you for decade, for a decade, just, just restrict again. And it, to sit with that is really painful, but really powerful. And so I guess there's no, it sounds a bit like of a platitude, but if you can kind of just sit with that and see the longer term, it does pass. Yeah, I do voice support for my one-to-one clients as well. Um, And one of the first things we do is actually um, kind of similar to a thing that I've got in a freebie that I'll put in the show notes as well, but is looking at, maybe you do this too, um, with your guys, is what are the pros and cons of changing and staying the same? And just having it, like we say, in black and white, really clear as just something that you can go back to. And everyone writes a huge long list of like 20 things of reasons why they don't want to stay the same. Like you say, in the moment, it feels like those are like minuscule and the wanting to binge or restrict is quite large. Um, But I think just looking back on them and when I've had a client voice note me and say, I've decided that I don't want to gain any more weight. I was like, "Mm, I can't remember how I phrased it. I phrased it very nicely and like with questions and stuff. But the take home message was like, this is not about the weight. This is about your whole life. This is about you being able to go out and eat with your friends. This is about you having energy um, and just bringing it back to all of those things that you're going to miss if you do kind of go back mm. to how you were before. I think sometimes that is powerful. Like just For my clients as well, we try and make that picture really big. And mm. so they're like, yes, that is what I really want. That is really motivating to me when that other part comes in and says, Ooh, all those things that you were, exactly. were saying one of the most interesting parts about that exercise i find is like what are the reasons for staying the same and i think that's mm-hmm. actually the crux of the exercise because there are yeah. reasons and it's really good to actually specify those 
Yeah, I think that's where it comes in about what people kind of pull out. It's like we were saying, oh, it's exciting. This is my fix. How am I going to get through my day if I don't have this fix? Actually, like you say, I think that's the most illuminating. And then I guess we know as, well, therapist and I don't know. What do you call yourself in this light? Course uh, creator? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, putting, in, putting, <laughs> putting in place the, the structure so that other guys can, can get help. Yeah, like we know, okay, this is where people need to make the changes. These are the beliefs mm. that we sort of need to turn on their head or or change. So yeah, I think anyone listening, it's really worth going through that. Like I said, the PDF that I've got kind of takes you through those like step by step as well. It's called saying goodbye to your eating disorder. Nice. I can't remember what the byline was. It was something like for when you really want to change, but you really don't. Nice. Kind of pulling out those, what are the sticky bits mm. that come along. Yeah. Okay. So last question. Thank you for staying a bit over. Um, What would you say to someone that said to you, I just want to eat normally? I probably first thing would be like, congratulate them. Like that's like, uh, if you're saying that, I think you've come, you're quite a long way in your journey already. So like kind of great work so far. And then I think what we say to a lot of the guys is like, you know, you kind of have to admit that there is, you have to accept, acceptance is a big part of this, so accept that you are kind of struggling. And that doesn't mean you're kind of admitting to be like, like mentally ill or it doesn't mean you're kind of admitting mm-hmm. to be a failure or anything like this. It's just actually actually reframing it as like being incredibly strong to do what you're doing. So the first thing I'd be like, like, <laughs> well done. And the second thing I'd be like, that's this is really fucking strong. Like, well done. Like, this is really powerful of you. And then it would be... Um, definitely the the kind of the evidence-based approach of like okay well let's go let's not do these surface level things that won't last in the long term let's try and go it's kind of deeper systematic approach to change these cognitive associations and yeah you've come to the right place like well done to you yay that's so lovely getting in on the positive okay thank you so much thanks rich Thank you for listening to the Just Eat Normally podcast. I hope you found this enjoyable, interesting and insightful and informative. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to hear the next episode. And just remember that you can check out the show notes for contact details and extra resources.